0: Uh, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I do understand after seeing that video that I need to take a drawing class and that I need to charge my iPad. I did eventually charge it. I, loved, I like to live dangerously. I like to live in the 10% range on my iPad. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 18. Last week on Vision Sunday, we kind of laid out a a vision, a prayerful vision for the future. And that vision and hope for the future is that we see this local church last for another hundred years, and in that hundred-year time, plant or see established another hundred churches. Now, if you've been around Cross of Grace for any length of time, we hope you're picking up something. We hope you're picking up that, in, in addition to picking up a donut, we hope that you are picking up our love for the local church. We really do believe that the local church is the most powerful movement in human history. And this simple, unassuming thing, this thing we drive by uh, probably a bunch every day, we see, we're used to, we're in one right now, doesn't at first seem as powerful and impactful as it truly is? The local church, and here's three reasons why I believe it's the most powerful organization and movement in human history. First, the local church has been the most powerful force in human history for the last 2000 years. I mean, we saw in the book of Acts, the gospel going from place to place to place to place, from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the heart of Rome by the end of Acts, and it keeps spreading from there. And in the 2000 years since, it has spread into the Middle East, into Europe, into Africa and North America. Uh, There's a huge explosion in the global south right now with local churches. It has proven more powerful, more long-lasting, more enduring than empires and kings. Second, the local church is even right now the most powerful movement on the earth today. Now, the local church and the church in general does receive... Criticism And rightly so for when it hurts people or messes up or falls short of, of Jesus' vision for the church. But despite all of its flaws and shortcomings, it is still deceptively powerful. Jesus uses the parable of the mustard seed to, to, to illustrate that this tiny seed, when planted, grows into the largest plant in the garden. And similarly, the, the local church, even though it seems small and unassuming, becomes something powerful and world and community changing. I saw a recent social media thread from Pastor Josh Howerton where he gathered some statistics of the difference that local churches are making in their communities that many people aren't even aware of. Uh, For example, in the area of adoption and care for the fatherless, church-going Christians adopt more children than any other population segment by double uh, local church participation dramatically reduces mental health crises. And in fact, Christian, uh, church-going Christians, not just Christians, church-going Christians were the only population segment to improve their mental health in the year 2020. Well, everyone else is like, well, Christians are, we're okay. We had some challenges, but we, we actually improved, uh, grew probably in our trust in the Lord. Uh, church growing, church-going Christians give exponentially more time and more money to the poor, to the needy, than the rest of the population. Church, uh, And sometimes you hear, well, the church is bad for women. The church is not good for women. It's down on women. No. In fact, the, the stats are that church-going women are in the happiest relationships and their risk of abuse drops 50%. Uh, church-going participation dramatically reduces crime uh, in its members and in the community, which I'm, I'm, hope, I'm glad to hear that. Like homicide, robbery, all those things, aggravated assault, they, they should be down, God willing. Um, and church participation dramatically reduces the three big dangers for teens that educators have identified. Those three dangers are depression, substance abuse, and uh, promiscuity. And the church makes a dramatic impact on those. And last, maybe you're like, okay, whatever, whatever, whatever. Listen to this. This is actually statistically true. The church participation has proven to increase your lifespan by seven years on average. Meaning you just, you feel better. And... And you have a support and a community. And so even though from the outside, the local church may seem unassuming, all of these ripple effects are being felt by local churches in communities around them. And I'm not saying every local church is perfect, but I am saying the local church is powerful. And these are just temporal benefits. I'm not even talking about people's eternal destinies being changed forever with the power of the gospel. This is just what we can see. And last... The local church is the only movement guaranteed to last until the end of history. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is no other thing in this world today that is backed by the promise of the resurrected King Jesus Christ behind it in that way. No company, no, no culture, no country, none of it. Jesus backs the church so here's our call time is short eternity is long and the local church is the vehicle Jesus is working through to reach the world now this this has been our conviction by God's grace since the very beginning of our church in the late 70s, early 80s, and in the last 40-something years, we have not wavered in our belief in the local church. And so as we look out at, at the almost million El Paso residents around us or the million and a half in, in, in our region or in the millions and millions in the United States, we believe that what our, church, what our world and our country and our city need most are healthy local churches Carrying forward the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, we're going to do two things today. First, we're going to look at how... uh, We're going to get a snapshot of how mission advances through the local church and learn some principles about it. And we're going to learn those things looking at how the church in Corinth in particular is planted. Uh, For the fall, we're going to be walking through the the, the first letter to the Corinthians... So we're going to see how that church is planted. And then I'm going to highlight some particular areas that will help us continue advancing the gospel by God's grace for the years to come. So uh, let's see what the Lord uses in this particular case to establish the mission and advance the mission of the church. Acts 18, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. This is God's word. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ Christ, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancre, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow and they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. This is God's word. Now, in Acts 18, uh, normally we would walk through this passage kind of section by section, expositing the text in particular. But I'm going I'm to highlight five principles in particular of gospel culture that, that propels mission. So we're going to look at five cultural markers that this specific instance shows us, but really are present throughout the whole book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. And the reason we're focused on culture this week and next week is this. When we're building a culture, we're, we're, we're doing something better than coming up with a strategy, right? A strategy is useful and helpful, and you should have a strategy every year for your life or for your church. But strategy is not going to last 100 years, I mean, think about how different the, the the world of 1923 is than than 2023, right? There there is a massive gap. We can't predict what's going to happen, so our strategy is not going to help our kids and grandkids. Neither is our strategy going to be able to be exported to to South America or or India or or even more um, kind of dangerous and and strange Albuquerque, New Mexico, something like that. Like. You know, you, you can't necessarily say, well, this is what we're doing, so we're just gonna do it there. Strategy won't carry, but culture can carry. Culture can last. Culture can be passed down from generation to generation, and culture can be carried out across our region and across the world. And so we're gonna look at five marks of mission culture in the New Testament using this text, and the first mark of culture is this. Never go alone. What you notice about mission in the New Testament is that no one ever goes alone. Paul goes, but very quickly, Timothy and Silas join him. And along the way, Paul adds more people. And there are people going back and forth throughout the book of Acts. In fact, Paul starts his whole missionary journey because in Acts 13, he's sent out. But he's not sent alone. He's sent with another man to go with him. And no one in the New Testament is doing ministry alone. And this is exactly what we see in the book of Ephesians. Last year as we studied that, Paul in Ephesians 4 uses the metaphor of a body. And often we think of the, the body metaphor in Ephesus, uh, of, in Ephesians, as, okay, this is the way the church builds itself up and, and kind of ministers to one another. We, we are the body and we minister through, through Bible studies and through groups and things like that. That's true but we also are on mission together as a body. Meaning that that the way we take the gospel to the world around us is the same way that we are built up within the body. The mission inside and outside are both the same in that they both take all of us together. Now, yesterday I was at the UTEP football game, the Harvard of the borderland, our great victory over a school I have never heard of before. And... Uh, one of the guys in attendance was Aaron Jones, our hometown hero, right? That may, maybe one of the best known, probably, probably I think, the, at this point, the best known UTEP player that's gone on to play in the NFL. And I was re- remembering his last season at UTEP. I looked some statistics up. In 2016, his last year at UTEP, he became the all-time leading rusher for the University of Texas at El Paso. And that season, he rushed for 1,773 yards. Scoring seventeen touchdowns, and i didn 't look the stats up, but i'm assuming we only scored eighteen touchdowns, and he was probably seventeen of them, if you remember that season. He had this absolutely lights out year, but the team's record that year was four and eight right we're, we're not playing in the sugar Bowl this is like this is a, this was a, it was a rough year, and it was basically like we all just tuned in to watch Aaron Jones run over people and then we're sad and turn the TV off in the fourth quarter eventually because there's only one guy can only do so much. It's the team that matters. It's the team that wins together. And in a similar way, no one person at the church. Often we, we think, okay, this gifted person at the church, they're the one doing the real ministry. And I'm just back here and I'm like, good job. Go get him, Alec. Go do ministry, you know. And he's Aaron Jones and he's rushing. Meanwhile, the team's four and eight because the rest of us are just like, oh, that's great. Good job, right? It, it, it takes all of us together. Or maybe, this would be a little worse, maybe you think you're the Aaron Jones of Christianity. And you're like, man, why aren't people doing ministry the way I am? Why aren't people out there? I remember I talked to one guy one time who was like, I just don't understand why it's unreasonable that, that everybody on their way home from work would stop and share the gospel for an hour in the park or the mall. I'm like, man, that's okay, that's, that's a little intense. He's like, yeah, it's just easy. Just You get off work, you go to the mall, you share the gospel for an hour and you go home. And I was like, okay, but not everyone is you. You're in for that, you're excited about that, you're ready to do that. We, we need all of us, right? And that's the way mission advances. It, it, and often I think what can happen is there can be a growing disconnect in the church between the people fired up for mission and everybody else. And the fired up for mission people are like, come on, why isn't everybody doing this with us? And the other people are like, you guys are crazy. You guys are intense. Like every time I'm hanging out with you, you end up in like a 30-minute apologetics conversation with some random lady at Walmart. Like I just want to get my groceries. And, And let me just say this, I think it was one of the sad realities of our church is that not uh, Thankfully, as we just saw today, this isn't the case in our church, but it can become, things can become disconnected to the point where parachurch ministries carry the mission and the local church does the, well, we're just going to stay here and pray and have potlucks. You separate out the community and the mission into different entities even we're in the local church, we all need one another. We need the fire of the evangelist to drive us forward just like they need the help, sanctification, and encouragement of the rest of us. Where do they turn when their marriage is broken? Where do they turn when their kid's in the hospital, right? It takes all of us. So uh, we never go alone. Second mark of culture, we never stop hiring. Now notice that that Paul meets these believers, it seems as though they're believers, Priscilla and Aquila, and essentially he recruits them into gospel work. Now notice, none of these guys, not not even Paul, is getting paid full time. So oftentimes we think, okay, gospel ministry is really done by the people getting paid. Not so in this church. Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, the founding members of the church, if you could say it that way, are all working on the side and all sharing the gospel. And Paul has this pattern of wherever he goes, he's, he's grabbing people, he's hiring people. Uh, Timothy, this guy in the text, he, he was scooped up by Paul and Paul recruits him to the cause. Same with Silas. Paul is constantly hiring people saying, listen, what about gospel ministry? What about coming with me? And at the end of the text, I, I read that little bit at the end so you could see Aquila and Priscilla, they leave with Paul. Paul brings them with him to the next city, and then leaves them there to help the church. Later, Paul will write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see the pattern here? Paul recruits Timothy and then instructs Timothy, you need to pass this on, but you need to pass this on to men who will be able to then pass it on to others after them. Similarly, uh, in Titus 2, you see this pattern of older women are called to help, encourage, strengthen younger women who are having probably a ton of kids at home and then those kids will grow up and disciple their kids and so on and so on. We are, the way I'm saying it is we are always hiring. We never stop hiring. And as soon as the church stops recruiting, stops hiring, stops bringing new leaders, stops giving people chances, then mission just stops. Mission calcifies as soon as we start to say, well, they don't do as well as the other person. You know, well, this guy's starting a community group. Well, he's not, he's not as good as my old community group leader. Let me be honest with you there right? Or or we got a new pastor. Well, but he's not as good as our other pastor. You know, like, as soon as we begin to say, no, no, we're going to be hesitant. We're going to stop hiring. So, he, I know this is super cheesy, but this is what I've done. Uh, at Cross of Grace Church, we, I've made, I've made, hang on, hang on, you'll see this. Okay, here we go. We've made a, a now hiring sign, okay? Uh, job positions, greeters, group leaders, Bible teachers, senior senior pastors. Okay, that's I didn't put that there. I did. I did put that there. Um, And here's what we do. We hang this over everything we do at the church. So for the rest of the message, I'm just going to put this right here. If anybody wants this job after the service, come talk to me. Because I think it's important that every level of the church, we're always going, well, who's next? Right? I I heard of two two of our... uh, kind of longtime teachers in, in kids' ministry have uh, a, a brother that's helping them in the class now, and they came, and we're talking to John, and we're like, hey, we would love to see our helper, even though he's not assigned to teach, we'd love to help him learn how to teach and give him some rope and opportunities to teach. And I love that. So it's not just, okay, these people are the teachers, these people are the helpers. No, we have teachers, and we have future teachers, Right? Or these people are attendees of this small group, but they're probably future small group leaders as well. Everything we're doing, we're looking to replicate. We're looking to to, to recruit the next person into gospel ministry. All right, third principle now. We never run out of chairs. And I explain what I mean by that. Now, this is a very unique church in Corinth. It, 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 It has... Imagine going to this church. It has these two business owners, Priscilla and Aquila, who kind of bring Paul. They have this former Jewish rabbi lawyer in Paul. It has a prominent citizen, Titius, with what sounds like a pretty big house if the church is meeting in his house. So a pretty prominent citizen. And then the leader of the synagogue gets saved. And all these people are there together. And we, we read in 1 Corinthians, there are rich people and poor people in the church. There are Jews and Gentiles in the church. There are super kind of mystical spiritual people and people that are like, I don't like any of that stuff. We have all kinds of people. But at no point in this narrative does Paul say, I think we're good. I think we got enough people now, Okay. He's always going, no, 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 let's bring them in, let's bring them in, I'm going to keep sharing, I'm going to keep going, I'm going to keep recruiting people, I'm going to keep sharing the gospel, I'm going to keep making room in our hearts and lives for more people. Which is why I've tried to sum that up with, we never run out of chairs. This is the biblical value of hospitality. In the Old Testament, when God's people are commanded to show hospitality, what they're commanded to do is take strangers, even people who are passing through, and show them hospitality and say, you can eat at our table. You can stay with us. We'll extend our protection to you. First Peter 4.9, uh, Peter encourages the church, show hospitality, comma, without grumbling. Just because Peter knows us. Or maybe he knows himself, Right? Meaning it is hard work sometimes to take strangers and make them friends and take those friends and make them into family in Christ. And yet that is the momentum of the New Testament. And so uh, this, is, this is the best illustration I could come up with for this, is this chair. Now, does anybody recognize this kind of chair? Raise your hand if you've seen one of these chairs before. Anybody seen one of these chairs? Okay, we got a lot of people. Is anybody seen one of these chairs and wondered why do we have such weird old beaten up chairs. Yeah Lenny does. Yeah it's just like these chairs have been around. I was talking to Chuck about this after the first service. We acquired these chairs in 1979. And you're like, I don't know if I want to sit on that anymore. Yeah. They're sturdy, they're tried and true. 44 years, man. And and the reason so many of us are familiar with these chairs is not primarily, I don't think, because we use them for church events. It's because anytime somebody in the church moves that's been part of the church for a long time, they have these chairs somewhere in their garage. Has anybody experienced this? Like you're moving somebody and you're like, wait a minute, how did you get these four chairs? But, but here's how. So I think Chuck said we bought like 500 chairs or something. And they are now spread. Somebody told me one time that they saw one of these chairs at a garage sale from somebody that wasn't even part of the church. And they're like, how did you get this chair? And they're like, I don't know. So these chairs are all over El Paso. They have a hilarious story about them. I want to tell you after the service. But I can't. I got to stay focused. So the, the chair itself, here's why I'm bringing it up. The chair's were distributed across the entire church because primarily people were having church meetings in their homes and didn't have enough chairs. Meaning you in your living room might have seating for eight, but you know your community group is not eight people, right? Anybody who's ever led a community group, if you have like eight people signed up for your group, how many chairs do you need? 20. Yeah, 20. Yeah, that's, that's a little high. But if you have eight people coming, you eight people signed up at the beginning of the semester, you always want to have 10 chairs, right? If you have 10 people signed up, you always want to have 12. Because when somebody shows up, you don't ever want to be like, oh, uh, sorry, we don't have a chair for you. <laughs> like, so you're planning, you're planning that people will come and become part of your life that you don't know yet. And that's why these chairs are spread throughout the entire church. Because from the beginning of our church, we have planned for people who are not part of our church family yet to become part of our church family. To be welcomed into our lives. Because this isn't just about meeting spaces. This is really about your life. It's do you have room for new people in your life? A new person on Sunday that you're like, listen, if you're new, just let me talk about you for a second. You won't be weird, but everybody will try to shake your hand at the end. Uh, When you come in on Sunday and you can see somebody going like this. Like this. And your temptation in that moment is to go, I don't have room in my life for that person. <laughs> I don't know what they are. They look weird. I don't like that shirt. I'm going to move on. Instead of going, hey, how are you? My name's Ricky. I'd love to meet you. Oh, we, our community group meets on Friday. We'd love to have you. Right? That, that is what it means to never run out of chairs. All right, next. Fourth Last two will be brief. Fourth, we never close our hands. And this is what I mean by that. In the early church, the mission is powered by sacrifice. Everyone has to be willing to sacrifice for the mission to continue. Everything the early church does has to be held with an open hand. Notice that all of a sudden, from one week to the next, the meeting location of the church changes. All of a sudden, the, the, the Gentile contingent have the, the, the Jewish synagogue head sitting next to them on Sundays. All of a sudden, like it just keeps happening. These changes keep happening to the church and, and even the relationships of the church. If you've grown to love Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and you're like, oh, they're our founding members. They were the people here first. I remember Priscilla and Aquila had me over for dinner. By the end of the passage, Priscilla and Aquila, they're gone. They're in the next city. And if I'm, if I'm in that church, I'm thinking, no, these people sound awesome. They're business owners. They're probably helpful to have around. They're probably helping fund the mission. And Paul's like, nope, I need them with me on my next, uh, my next missionary endeavor. And so they go with, in fact, these folks end up moving all over the place in the Mediterranean because they've, they keep their life with an open hand. Now, uh, this is, again, uh, these are the cheesiest illustrations I could come up with to torture you with, but this is, this is the, che- the, the way I could think to encapsulate this. Sometimes in the church, we have these things that we're like, yes, Lord, amen, we have our hands open in worship, but we really have our hands closed around some things in our life. And when it comes to mission, pushing on those things, we're like, well, the Lord, have you ever done this? The Lord, you can have anything you want in my life. Except for this, but you can have 90 percent, well, maybe 85 percent of anything you want in my life, right? But we have some things we keep hidden in behind our back, and so I've got some things here. So what are what do we got here? I'm gonna actually don't remember what I wrote on these, so we're gonna find out live together. Oh, okay, here we go. Here's something we can hold with a closed hand. My service and favorite seat. I I. <laughs> I still remember when we, oh man, when we changed service times, um, we had a, you know, a dear couple with some young children and we had to change our service times. We were trying to accommodate more people and they said, you know, I hadn't, and I hadn't seen them since we started the new service times. So I reached out and I was like, are you guys okay? And they said, yeah, uh, well, it's not gonna work out for us at the church. And we were like, oh man, are you, I mean, is there a conflict? What happened? And they're like, yeah, our, our baby's nap schedule the new service times just, they do not, they do not work with the nap schedule. I'm sorry. And I'm, I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, they're like, yeah, the extra half hour, it just throws everything off. And you're like, oh man, but how many of us can be like that, right? How many of us, okay, well, listen, I, I'm no longer excited. I don't see the band. Where's the drummer? I'm not excited anymore. I can't, I'm not going to be able to worship the Lord today. My service has to be like this. Or if that person's preaching, I, I don't know about that. I don't know. I don't like that guy. I like the other guy. We have to hold all of this with an open hand. Okay, let me do maybe one more. Uh, What is this one? Oh, my city. Oh, man. This is Priscilla and Aquila did not keep this in a closed hand, right? They said, We're willing to be here or we're willing to be there for the sake of the gospel. Rather than being like, I never want to stay in El Paso long-term, maybe you got to put that in an open hand. Or maybe, I, I, I'm only going to be in El Paso forever. You got to put that in an open hand. Whatever it is. Okay, one more, one more. Uh, just because I'm curious what I wrote on Thursday, which I don't remember. Uh, oh, my church location. Oh, man, what if we plant churches? What if we outgrow this location completely and have to move? Uh, I remember talking to somebody when we did our first off-site service at another location. They were like, but why? I was like, well, so we could all be together. But why? You know, it's just like, I get it. I understand. We can hold these things in, in our hands. And, and, and here's the point. Jesus tells us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Brothers and sisters, as soon as we close our hands around things, mission of the church grinds to a halt. All right, last, fifth and last, we never confuse first and second Now, imagine Paul coming to Corinth and seeing all the needs of this city. It is a sexually perverse place. It is a broken place. It is a place with major uh, animosity between rich and poor. It is a place where charlatans are defrauding people with mystical promises. It is a place full of broken marriages. And Paul sees all these needs on, on coming to Corinth, and he could have interjected himself into any one of these areas of the city trying to make a difference, but what Acts 18 shows Paul laser focused on is preaching the message of the gospel of Jesus. It says over and over, you could trace that thread through the whole passage. He starts speaking, he won't stop speaking, God encourages him, don't stop speaking, because Paul knows this, the best thing for all the needs of the city of Corinth is starting with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what gives people hope and healing and and a future, not just now, but in eternity. The gospel of Jesus works its way into all these other topics. Paul in 1 Corinthians will talk about marriage. He'll talk about sexuality. He'll talk about income inequality and animosity between the rich and poor. He gets to all these things, but he uses the gospel working its way into the details of life to begin to transform marriages and relationships and all of that. And here's the danger, church. As soon as we begin to put things that are biblically second in the first place, when, when other things begin to crowd out or, or relocate the gospel from first to second, we lose the mission. Because here's the reality. It does no eternal good for us to feed every homeless person without the gospel of Jesus Christ, to, to fix every marriage, to do every good thing we can in the city around us. And by God's grace, I hope we do those things. I, by God's grace, I hope we're known for people who, who love to help broken marriages, who love to help addicts, who feed the homeless, who, who care about the fatherless. I pray that we become a church that is that. And I thank God that we are becoming a church that is that. But if we do all those things and lose the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have lost the mission. And so Paul gives us the example of never confusing first and second. 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I decided when I came to you to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I delivered to you what was of first importance, that Christ lived, that Christ died, that Christ rose again. And here's the reality. We, we can put the gospel in first in our statement of faith. We can put it first even in our messages. But if the gospel is not first in our church, in our relationships, in our groups, in our ministries, well, eventually the gospel will slip from first to second. This is where we need all of us. And so as we, as we close, let, 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 me, let me just make a plea on behalf of of our team and pastors and just say this, this this building of a culture is not something any one or two or five people can do in our church. See, strategy in some ways is easier because somebody can come up with a strategy and make a map and then say, okay, everybody go do it. But a culture takes everyone. The culture works its way down into our individual relationships and groups. And that... Right, that's what you see in Acts 18 threaded throughout the New Testament. But the Lord is there to help. Look at very briefly at the end what Paul says, I mean, what the Lord says to Paul in this vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in the city who are my people. Here's the encouraging thing as we close in looking at this. We do not start the mission and God joins us along the way. No, the Lord is already at work in the city of Corinth before Paul even shows up. The Lord is with Paul. The Lord says he has people in the city of Corinth that are his people, that God has already before the foundation of the earth called and and is going to save. He has a plan for the city of Corinth and he invites Paul. He invites Aquila and Priscilla. He invites Timothy. He invites this church into his plan. And that's the good news, church. The gospel is creating this culture, the Lord is building this culture. The question is whether we will join him. Would you stand and let's pray? Oh, Lord, I, I pray for us. Lord, I, I pray that these marks that have been true of us over the last 40 years would continue to be true of us in the many years to come. Lord, I I pray that we would always be a church where mission is not a department of the church. It is not a, a, a task delegated to some evangelist pastor, but Lord, it is something that we carry in our hearts together whether that's making meals for Alpha or leading discussion groups or teaching, Lord, whatever it is, I pray that we would all be involved in this. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church that that never stops hiring and recruiting and and adding people into gospel mission. Lord, I pray that from the very beginning, Lord, that, that, that people in our church would feel the invitation that we want you, we need you. We would love to have your help, that we would invest freely into leaders, capable men and women in our church. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that never runs out of chairs. Lord, the the value of hospitality that's built our church in many ways over the last 40 years would, would not be ever lost. We would not, our lives would never be too full or too crowded to welcome someone else new into it. I pray, Lord, that we would never close our hands around preferences and people and things in our church. Lord, I pray that we would have an open hand about our lives, Lord, that we'd be willing to make sacrifices, that we'd be willing to take up a cross and follow you, and that we would trust you to give us what we need. And then last, Lord, I pray. I pray according to what we're about to sing here at the end. Lord, I pray that we would never confuse first and second in our church. Lord, let let there never be a day where the gospel is first on our, our statement of faith, but it is not first in our hearts. It's not first in our groups. It's not first in our relationships. Lord, I pray that that the church would be known for many good things and good deeds and service to the poor and service to the campuses of of El Paso, UTEP, and EBCC and services to the fatherless. I pray that we would be faithful to demonstrate the reality of the gospel. But Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray for the life of this church, however long that is, Lord, you know your plan for it. For the life of this church that we would never confuse first and second. That until the end of this church or until you return, our confession would be what is of first importance is that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he rose again according to the scriptures. And on that, our faith and life rest. Amen.